Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine and creator of drjockers.com, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. On this podcast, I talk all the time about getting high-quality, deep, restorative sleep because it's just so critically important for your overall health. And I talk a lot about sleep hygiene. We talk about keeping your room as dark as possible, wearing an eye mask, keeping your room cool. We talk about blue light blocking glasses at night before you go to bed. But you know what we often overlook? In fact, I don't think I've ever really talked about it, is the importance of having really comfortable bedding, sheets, blankets, and pillows. I mean, it's just common sense. You really need to be as comfortable as possible in your bed. And that's why I want to introduce you guys to my friends over at Cozy Earth. They develop and craft high-quality goods with responsibly and sustainably sourced materials from the earth so that you can get the restorative sleep you need to curate your sanctuary and recharge from the comfort of your home. What I love about Cozy Earth is they use this sustainable, viscous from bamboo fabrics, and it's softer than cotton. It feels amazing, and it's temperature regulating, which means it will keep you cool and comfortable all night long. Cozy Earth has been featured on Oprah's favorites list four years in a row, and they have a 10-year warranty on all their products, and they offer a 100-night sleep test. That means you can try it for 100 nights, and if you don't love it, you can send it back for a full refund. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, guys. I guarantee you are going to love their fabrics. Check them out. Go to CozyEarth.com, and they provided an exclusive offer for my listeners today. You get 35% off site-wide when you use the code DRJockers or Dr. Jockers, all one word, DRJockers at checkout. So again, go to CozyEarth.com, use the coupon code DRJockers at checkout to save 35% off today. Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to the Chronic Inflammation Summit, where we're looking at the root cause of chronic disease. I'm your host, Dr. David Jockers, and today we're talking about neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, dementia. These things are on the rise. Inflammation is at the core of it, and so we have got a great guest. This is the empowering neurologist, Dr. David Perlmutter. You probably know him from his New York Times bestselling books, uh, we've got Grain Brain, we've got Brain Maker as well, which really dove into the microbiome and how it impacts the brain. And then also his newest book, Brain Wash. Fantastic books to get, guys, great resources. And we're going to talk a lot about neurodegenerative diseases, uh, root cause factors that are involved in them. We're going to talk about early warning signs. And we're also going to talk about lifestyle strategies you can take today to give you the best chance to prevent these things. And if you are suffering with them, or if you have a family member that's suffering with them, to give them the best opportunity to heal or to at least slow down the progression of the disease. So Dr. Perlmutter, welcome to the summit. Well, Dr. Jockers, thank you for having me. Good to see you again. Absolutely. Well, I always enjoy talking with you. You're a wealth of knowledge. And you know we're really in your niche topic here, which is neurodegenerative conditions. Can you talk about them? And obviously you you were in private practice seeing people for many years. And can you talk about the rise in neurodegenerative conditions as well over the years? Sure. So, you know, as it relates to, I think the one people are most fearful of, and that is Alzheimer's disease. Uh, you know, the rates of Alzheimer's disease are increasing fairly dramatically. We're approaching uh, 6 million uh, people diagnosed in the United States right now. And it's not just because our population is aging, it's even beyond that. And, you know, we're seeing uh, this actually being diagnosed in younger and younger individuals. So it's really quite clear, especially when you look at the research that does uh, compares uh, two variables like uh, diabetes or obesity or inflammatory markers and risk for developing uh, Alzheimer's, we really see a lot of correlation there that uh, explains perhaps what is going on on the one hand. And on the other hand, I think offers us up 
some really powerful interventions uh, that can be substantiated in terms of why we're doing, why we are recommending what we recommend, at least um, based upon these relationships. And now we know mechanistically we can describe some pretty powerful relationships between uh, inflammation, for example, and risk uh, for Alzheimer's disease. And this isn't new. Uh, we've known about this actually for quite some time. Researchers 30 years ago uh, collected blood samples on individuals and then followed these individuals for, for 24 years. And uh, this is um, a group of 1,600 patients, or rather individuals, uh, had their blood looked at, and they created what is called an inflammatory index. And what does that mean? Uh, they looked at a variety of markers of inflammation back then, three decades ago. Uh, things like fibrinogen, von Willebrand's factor, white blood cell count. We don't really use them much today or others. Mm -hmm. But these are markers of inflammation. They followed these people for 26 years. And what did they find? That there was a dramatic correlation between having elevation of these inflammatory markers three decades ago and risk today of having a smaller brain and a reduction in memory. So it tells us a couple of things. First, that inflammation is really important yeah. as measured by those markers. Today, we use other markers, of course. But it also tells us that what happens uh, today may impact how your brain is decades from now. So it's not really good enough to say, uh, I'm going to wait until I forget all of my grandchildren's names or you know, I'm gonna, for the 10th time, ask somebody what is my Wi-Fi passcode, pass whatever it is. Uh, you know, when it gets to the point that you're walking in the room and forgetting why you went there so many times, you say, you know, I think I'll see a doctor at this point. Guess what? There's nothing really dramatic that she or he is going to be able to do at that point to really turn it around. Although we do see that there is some effectiveness of some, you know, aggressive lifestyle uh, choices. We know that there's no medication, with what I'm getting at, that yeah. will help this individual. Interestingly, um, in 2018, in our most well-respected neurology journal called Neurology, <laughs> put out by the American Board of Neurology, uh, they looked at 14 different possible interventions that could be utilized to help prevent somebody from going from what is called MCI, mild cognitive impairment, into full-blown Alzheimer's. Drugs like uh, Namenda, Memantine, uh, cholinesterase inhibiting drugs like Donepazil, Aricept. And they ended up with only one recommendation. They made this recommendation to every neurologist who reads the journal, hopefully every neurologist in America. And their recommendation, the most powerful thing, in fact, the only thing that was scientifically proven to reduce your risk of going from mild cognitive impairment into full-blown dementia was something called exercise. And that was published in the, our journal. I couldn't believe it. Up toe-to-toe -to -toe against all these multi-million dollar drugs, the only thing that worked was exercise. Now, um, a lifestyle choice. So We've got to do everything we can right now so we don't even get to that place. You know, prevention yeah. is really what it's all about because, you know, understand that we have no powerful pharmaceutical intervention whatsoever that's going to turn this around once things really become uh, dysfunctional. Well, that's a really important thing to understand. What you're saying is that Alzheimer's disease is something that it's not like we just get it all of a sudden. We don't wake up one day with it when we're 65 years old. It's something we start developing early in life. I mean, it could be as early as even in our you know childhood years and teens, we start the process of developing this. And it's a long-term process, but there are things we can do today. We shouldn't wait until, you know, again, we're 65 and now we've got full-blown symptoms because unfortunately conventional medicine, they don't have a silver bullet for this, but there are things we can be doing today to help prevent that. And that's a really empowering message. So what are some of the root cause factors too that you're seeing at the root of the development of brain inflammation? You know, hard to say which comes first. Uh, is obesity, for example, the root cause factor or what are the lifestyle choices that end up manifesting as obesity? 
And I choose that because I think it, it, uh, it plays very uh, handily into our notion as to when people should begin thinking about adopting a, a brain-proofing kind of program. Uh, one study published in the journal, again, Neurology, back in 2008, looked at a group of over 6,000 people, followed them for 36 years. At the beginning of the time when they followed this group, they did a very, very um, sophisticated test. And what it involved was they measured how big was their belly. Mm. And they followed these individuals uh, for 36 years. And they found that those people 36 years ago who had a big belly. Like a waist a, size measurement? Is that what they did? Pardon me? Was it a waist size measurement or was it It was BMI? a waist size measurement. Yeah, waist exactly. size. Yeah. Well, basically waist to hip ratio. Yeah, yeah. And they found that those individuals had a big belly 36 years ago, had a three-fold increased risk for developing dementia, hmm. a disease for which there is no treatment. Right. The point I'm trying to make is that possibly one of the most powerful screening tools available in modern science to determine your risk for future development of dementia is a tape measure. Hmm. Think about that. And there's all these efforts uh, underway to find a blood marker for Alzheimer's. Certainly, uh, that'd be great. A blood marker for Alzheimer's risk. Well, there isn't one yet, but we know that a tape measure can do the job. We do know there's a very powerful relationship between inflammatory markers, interleukin-6, uh, interleukin-1-beta, tumor necrosis factor alpha, uh, and risk for downstream uh, development of Alzheimer's, and certainly even C-reactive protein is related. Something even more banal would be blood sugar and uh, hemoglobin A1C. Mm -hmm. Both relate directly and dramatically to risk of dementia. Study published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2017 looked at a group of, I believe, 2,300 non-demented individuals followed them for 6.7 years. And the only test they did at the beginning of the study was their blood sugar, fasting blood sugar. We yeah. all have had that. Everybody goes to the doctor. That's part of the blood work that you get every year. And they found that people who had elevation of their blood sugar, even to 105 and 110, had an increased risk of dementia after about seven years. So what does it tell us? It tells us that maybe we ought to take better control of our blood sugar because that's powerfully related. We know that blood sugar, when it's elevated, causes what's called insulin resistance to happen. Mm. The brain needs to have functioning insulin to power itself, to allow blood sugar to get into the cells. The brain needs to have insulin available in a working fashion to allow the brain during times of starvation to use what are called ketones. We know that insulin is a trophic hormone in the brain as well, uh, nurturing the delicate brain neurons. So it says to us that we darn well better get our blood sugar under control today because down the line, when it's not under control, inflammation markers go up, our belly will get big, and our blood sugar will continue to rise. I've given you literature citations for all three, related to increased risk for a disease for which there is no pharmaceutical treatment. So it means eating in a way that keeps your blood sugar under control. It means getting enough restorative sleep has a direct effect on inflammation, a direct effect on blood sugar control. It means exercising has a direct effect on inflammation, has a direct effect on AMP kinase and therefore blood sugar control. So these are lifestyle factors that are hugely valuable to each and every one of us today. As John Kennedy said, the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining. You know, so for people who are at all concerned about uh, becoming demented, and that will be if you live to be age 85, 50% of people at 85 be, are demented. Uh, I, I'm hopeful wow. to reach 85, got 20 years to go. Uh, and I have a family history of Alzheimer's, so I'm doing what I can, yeah. uh, measuring my blood sugar uh, with a continuous glucose monitor. I can tell you my blood sugar at any given moment. It tells me how do I respond to certain things in my diet. Is white rice good or bad for me? Mm. Each of your viewers would want to know. 
Uh, are almonds a good choice? Mangoes, strawberries, white rice, what's good for your individual blood sugar? You can know that now by getting mm -hmm. a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor. You can know what your heart rate is doing during exercise. Are you targeting a heart rate and, and achieving that heart rate by wearing a wearable device that will tell you your heart rate? You can determine the quality of your sleep and the quantity yeah. of your sleep by a wearable device, uh, a specific ring called an aura ring right. is the one I use. And we'll tell you not just how long did you sleep, but was it good? Was it yeah. restorative? Because if it's not, then you're affecting your blood sugar, you're increasing inflammation in your body, and you're setting yourself up not just for Alzheimer's, but for diabetes, obesity, coronary artery disease, and even cancer. Those are the major causes of mm. death on planet Earth even right now in the midst of a pandemic, the number one cause of death on our planet are the chronic degenerative conditions over which our lifestyle choices have huge influence. It's a big message. Yeah, for sure. And I really like where this is going. And you, and you mentioned three key lifestyle principles, nutrition, keeping our blood sugar stable. You mentioned exercise, getting our heart rate up to a certain level on a semi-consistent basis. And then also you mentioned sleep and monitoring our deep sleep and REM sleep. And I definitely want to come back to all of those. What are some other lab tests? You mentioned hemoglobin A1C, fasting blood sugar. If somebody was to, let's say, go to their doctor and say, hey, I want to, I really want to understand my level of inflammation in my body and my overall health. What are some good lab markers that they could request? Well, I will tell you that um, a good surrogate marker for inflammation is something that many of your listeners, viewers uh, may have already had, and that is the hemoglobin A1C. Yeah. Hemoglobin A1C parallels levels of inflammation uh, in the human body. It also parallels levels of oxidized LDL or damaged bad cholesterol. So whereas many people um, might be visiting a doctor who doesn't do that level of cardiac lipid monitoring, uh, and you might want to know your oxidized LDL because it's really very relevant as it relates to your heart. Uh, again, this A1C is a surrogate marker for inflammation and for oxidized LDL. Blood sugar and insulin levels are also very valuable as they relate to themselves in terms of insulin resistance and blood sugar control. But again, they represent uh, surrogate markers for, for inflammation. Now, there are some specific markers for inflammation like fibrinogen, total white blood cell count, uh, high sensitivity C-reactive protein, and certainly some forward-thinking clinicians will go even further and measure uh, cytokines like interleukin-1-beta, uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-6, and uh, others like interleukin-10, uh, that tends to dampen inflammation. So you know, these are, uh, are ways of getting a, a, at least an understanding as to how uh, inflammation is being regulated in your body. You can also get a sense as to your risk for elevation uh, by having your genome sequenced and having it interpreted by an algorithm that will tell you, are you at risk for higher, elevation, uh, higher levels of inflammation uh, in general based upon your um, nuances of your genome. We call those SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms. But to have that uh, debriefed with somebody who's knowledgeable about what your genes look like and what it means to you in terms of risk for many things, but inflammation is certainly one of them. Uh, we can infer risk for elevation of inflammation uh, based upon looking at the ratio between omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids that are found in your bloodstream. Uh, another type of test that can be uh, looked at by, you know, integrative type doctors. And there is even the indication these days that we might be able to characterize your, your gut bacteria and give you some sense as to, is it favorable in terms of inflammation or might it put you at risk for higher levels of inflammation and even higher levels of uh, blood sugar and even insulin resistance. Yeah, very interesting. So there's a lot of different measurements <clears throat> that people can be looking at. This podcast is sponsored by Liver Health Formula from Pure Health Research. 
For anyone looking to ignite their fat-burning metabolism, boost their energy, and transform how they look and feel, they must start taking care of their liver. Your liver is your body's master detoxifier. It performs over 500 key functions in your body every single day. It's responsible for cleansing and removing thousands of harmful toxins, man-made chemicals, alcohol, and dangerous food additives and preservatives. And after decades of wear and tear, our livers slow down and they become sluggish. And this is why so many of us struggle with weight gain and feeling tired all the time. Fortunately, there's a simple all natural solution that I recommend. It's called Liver Health Formula. Liver Health Formula contains 12 powerful botanicals clinically proven to recharge and protect your liver at the cellular level. It helps restore your liver's detoxifying abilities. It boosts your energy levels and can kick your natural metabolism into high gear. It also works remarkably well to fight fatty liver, which is a silent epidemic affecting 100 million Americans. And right now, as a listener of our show, you can try Liver Health Formula completely risk-free and receive five free gifts when you order today. First, you're going to receive a free 30-day supply of nano-powered omega-3. This powerful blend of omega-3 fatty acids supports a healthy heart and brain with four times better absorption thanks to this special nano delivery system. You're also getting four free eBooks to support every aspect of your health and longevity, regardless of age. Just go to getliverhelp.com forward slash jockers or call toll free at 800-282-1757 to claim your risk-free supply of liver health formula and all five bonus gifts. That's get liver help. So G E T L I V E R H E L P dot com forward slash jockers or call 800 282 1757. You're covered by their 365 day money back guarantee. So you have nothing to risk, but supplies are limited. So go head over to get liverhelp.com forward slash chalkers or call toll free at 800-282-1757 now to order liver health formula and claim your five free bonus gifts while you still can that's get liverhelp.com forward slash chalkers or call 800-282-1757 Let's say somebody goes and just kind of gets standardized uh, round of labs. They have their lipid profile. Maybe they got a high sensitivity C-reactive protein in there. And, um, you know, their doctor also gave them a vitamin D test. What can they look at off of that as well as hemoglobin A1C? And let's say they even got a fasting insulin. What, um, what can they look at that? How do they look at that and see, kind of assess their risk from, let's say, those, those measurements? Well, let me just, uh, let me look at the hemoglobin A1C first yeah. and recognize that uh, there's a direct correlation between hemoglobin A1C in the so-called normal range, I might add, and the degree of a brain shrinkage annually published in the journal Neurology. Also uh, published in the journal Neurology uh, is a study uh, that dates back to 2013 that shows that there is a correlation between a hemoglobin A1C and decline even in functionality of the brain, in other words, memory. And this was between the levels of 5.4 and 6.3. Now, I would submit that most doctors are going to tell you, hey, those are great numbers. You watch television, you say, oh, I'm doing my best to get my A1C below 7. You know, what what we're (laughs) learning from the research is having an A1C below 7 is interesting, but it, it ain't cutting it. Yeah. In terms of, re- we don't want to be uh, in the normal range. We want to be in the desirable range, the optimal right. range. What is best for me? Uh, the study uh, that I mentioned earlier from the New England Journal looked at blood sugar. And again, that was showing elevation of risk for dementia in people who had blood sugars in 105 to 110 range. Increased risk of dementia correlated with that. And you know, most people are going to be told that that's a no- normal blood sugar. You don't have diabetes with the word yet uh, hanging right. in the background. I mean, it's diabetes is not, um, or not diabetes, it, it, it's not, uh, shouldn't be a binary digital kind of consideration. Either you have it 
or you don't. It's not like being pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. Uh, diabetes is, is analog. It's, it, we shouldn't say that just because you don't have a blood sugar of 126, everything is great. Or your hemoglobin A1C is below whatever the number is, or below seven, let's say. Everything's great. And then suddenly your blood sugar is 130 fasting. Oh, that's terrible. Now you're diabetic. You need to start taking all these drugs. It doesn't work that way. We need to uh, approach our patients much earlier in the game prior to them even being considered, quote, pre-diabetic and really get their blood sugars under control yeah. <clears throat> 10, 20, 30 years before they will likely otherwise have where, a problem. Where do you like to see the hemoglobin A1C? Oh, I'm fine at 5.2. Uh, yeah. 5 to 5.2, I think, is great. I think beyond that, though, we should definitely be looking at fasting insulin levels, yeah. uh, which should be you know really quite low, 6 to 8. Uh, but but importantly, for predicting uh, soon to be insulin uh, resistant, we should be looking at postprandial uh, right. insulin uh, insulin markers. So you know people are doing uh, uh, you know the five hour glucose tolerance test and looking yep. at blood sugar and seeing if it's elevated. Great, but it might just be that we don't see uh, a significant blood sugar elevation to make us all concerned because the pancreas is still just barely able to keep up by pushing out an awful lot of insulin. But that's yeah. going to exhaust really soon. If a person comes out with a, a five-hour GTT and it's looking pretty good just based on the glucose, it might well mean that that insulin is really cranked out as best as it can to keep that blood sugar under control. So I would submit that uh, what any lab can do, you just have to change your prescription, is measure uh, the insulin levels at yeah. the drawing blood anyway, just have them add insulin yeah. to that. Um, but I will also say that continuous glucose monitoring, which is becoming very popular, yeah. is, is so important for people to understand their blood sugar spikes and their uniqueness. What is it about you, right. Dr. Jockers, that will uh, spike your blood sugar? We talked mm -hmm. about it a moment ago. And that's exceedingly valuable information that is so predictive uh, in terms of looking at your your dynamics of blood sugar control uh, down the line and beyond being predictive is empowering for you to make changes to today uh, to keep your blood sugar under control. And, you know, I, I suspect you had planned to talk about a lot of different things with me today, but yeah. look what we're spending so much time on. Mm. And I, I don't mind a bit because I think it's really in the front row of the class right now. Yeah, I figured it would. I figured we would talk about this because, just like you said, I mean, blood sugar and insulin plays such a big role when it comes to inflammation throughout the body and particularly in the brain. And, you know, continuous blood glucose monitoring, CGM, is very, very interesting. There's company levels that's uh, now making it more accessible for people. And I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with that company. And yeah, when I, I did a, a four week trial with it, and it was very interesting because I saw that my body, I'm a slower caffeine metabolizer. So if I had more than 50 milligrams of coffee, my blood sugar would jump up like 10 uh, or 50 milligrams of caffeine. My blood sugar would jump up uh, into the hundreds, uh, you know, just, and it would stay there for, for an extended period of time. And so when I had 50 milligrams, I, I saw no, no major issue. And so most people are drinking like 200 milligrams in the morning or something like that. And, and when I did 50 milligrams- <laughs> yeah. And the great thing about it was I really felt great throughout the day. It was actually easier to do intermittent fasting at that level. Yeah. And uh, I felt really mentally clear. And also my sleep, how well I slept played a huge role in my blood sugar the next day. Uh, you know, the role of sleep uh, underrated in our society. Everybody wants to be productive, you know, gain a leg up on the next person. So they stay up late and they think they're going to be productive. And really, if you want to be productive for just a moment, get a good night's sleep. Yeah. Uh, getting back to our discussion, if you want to have better control of your blood sugar, get a good night's sleep. If you want to make better food choices, get a good night's sleep. And if you want to reduce mm. inflammation, again, a good night's sleep. How would you know? Uh, you might think you sleep well, but you're not going to know until you either have a polysomnogram, which is cumbersome. I had one. <clears throat> or you use a wearable of one form or another. Mm -hmm. I wear an aura ring yeah. and it tells me not just how long I slept, but what is the quality? How much REM did I get? How much deep sleep did I get? What was my sleep latency? What was my heart rate variability? What was my base, uh, my basic heart rate during sleep? And uh, 
And that's always good to know. So um, again, that's a powerful tool to rein in blood sugar control and also to gain control over inflammation. May not be enough, but you know, I would submit that one of the things that we explored in our latest book, you mentioned at Brainwash, is how sleep affects decision-making. Mm. For all of your viewers who are saying, yeah, I, I want to do all these things. I want to eat right. I want to exercise. But I, you know, I just tend to fall off the wagon. Can't stay with my decision-making. That sleep is hugely relevant as it relates to making good decisions the very next day. We know that impulsivity after one night of not getting enough sleep uh, is significantly increased. Uh, we know that people who, who habitually do not get enough restorative quality sleep will consume as an average more than 300 calories more each day in comparison to age-matched uh, individuals who are getting a good night's sleep. Uh, and that 300 calories, you know, it's just north of 3,000 calories is equal to a pound of body fat uh, if, you know, those calories are, for example, carb-related. So, and typically they are. Typically, the foods that people choose when they're not getting a good night's sleep are poor quality, uh, higher density in terms of calories, and more, high, more likely to be high, highly processed. Yeah, so setting up your nutrition uh, and having good nutrition actions, nutri good nutrition lifestyle habits, uh, really starts with the sleep and preparing yourself for a good night's sleep the night before. What's actually happening in our brain when we're sleeping? A lot of things are happening. Um, sleep is anything but a passive process. And I think that's really kind of an important lesson for us all that maybe Matthew Walker, more than anyone else in his book, mm -hmm. Why We Sleep, brought us on. Our memories are because daytime experiences are um, compared to previous experiences. Uh, new engrams are formed, how we see the world the following day. A lot of that happens during REM sleep. Uh, and then during deep sleep, very important. We know that a sleep is involved, for example, in helping the brain clear uh, amyloid protein, which uh, may be related to, well, is related to some degree, uh, to Alzheimer's disease. Even one bit of non-restored sleep uh, is associated with We know that sleep relates to immune function. You know, it's not just that it relates innate immunity and follow that with an adaptive immune response, whereby we create specific types of antibody as part of the adaptive response. Um, we also recognize uh, that, you know, uh, balance of the immune system is key, that the degree of immunoreactivity is very important. We don't want it overreactive with an overabundance of, of cytokine production because they can ultimately and, and are uh, damaging. We know there's a role for cytokines in helping our bodies recover from infection or injury. But at the same time, uh, we know that when they are created in abundance, they can create difficulties with respect to the brain, uh, with respect to the lungs and multiple organs in the body. And we know as it relates to COVID, we're absolutely seeing that unfold uh, with some of these uh, issues becoming longstanding, uh, which is something that, you know, that re uh, relates to having an imbalance of the immune system. Yeah, totally. Sleep is just so critical. And so when you're looking at it on the Aura Ring, which is a really cool device because, I mean, you basically just wear it on your finger, you sleep, and then you check your app on the phone and it actually tell you how much sleep you got, how much deep sleep, where you were interrupted throughout the course of the night. It'll also tell you your REM sleep. So as a neurologist, what do you like to see as far as like how much deep sleep, how much REM sleep for those folks that are able to monitor it or are doing it, or maybe they'll come back and listen to this interview after they get an aura ring or some other device that can, that can track this. What should be a good goal as far as deep sleep and REM sleep? Well, unfortunately, as it relates to the aura ring, they correct their parameters uh, based upon age. So right. we have to understand that those uh, variables are different really mm. depending on, on what age you are. Uh, I, I would think that at least as far as it relates to deep sleep, minimum uh, would be around an hour and 15 minutes. And yeah. uh, as it relates to REM sleep, uh, certainly a little bit more than that. Um, but as it relates to the aura ring, you'll get the very next morning, you'll get flagged uh, 
if in fact uh, you haven't received enough of, of either of those, if your total sleep was yeah. not good enough, if your sleep latency was prolonged, uh, you'll, you'll see it. And then you have to ask yourself, well, what did I do differently la last night or yesterday? Did I have coffee yeah. at 5 p.m.? And that's not something you should be doing. Although I would love it, but uh, <laughs> I, I know that if I do that, my deep sleep is compromised. Yeah, and I really focus on getting, uh, doing everything I can for my deep sleep. REM sleep for me is fine. I have never had an issue with that. But there have been times when my deep sleep hasn't been uh, good enough. Uh, and for a person who's got a family history of Alzheimer's, I'm really doing what I can to make sure. Uh, that I unwind in the evening, that I'm not on the computer, I'm not getting blue light to compromise melatonin, that I don't have coffee after 2 p.m., that I re religiously uh, engage in some pretty vigorous aerobics every day and resistance exercise. Um, and really, you know, all of the things that we call your hygiene of sleep or sleep hygiene yeah. that ensure that I'm going to get the best sleep that I possibly can. I keep the room cooler. Um, I got something called the crown pillow. Uh, and the crown pillow is uh, something I bought that you put over your head and it makes it really dark. And if there's noise from outside or whatever, you don't hear a thing. It's really been helpful for me. I, I generally, uh, I'm a, I sleep really well, but, you know, we all have our, uh, our times when, for whatever reason, uh, nervous about something. And certainly there's plenty of reason for that these days. A lot, a lot is going on. A lot is going on. Uh, but... Uh, you really need to uh, look. You don't spend eight hours a day eating. You don't spend eight hours a day exercising, but you should spend eight hours a day. A third of your life uh, should mm -hmm. be spent doing this thing called sleeping. It's something that every animal does on the planet. So therefore, it's got to be really important. You spend yeah. so much time, or you should sleeping. It's time that we ratchet it up, uh, uh, you know, to the very top. Uh, along with exercise and the food that we eat as being hugely important. People who do not sleep well enough or long enough have a dramatically increased risk for diabetes, obesity, and even Alzheimer's. And interestingly, as it relates to Alzheimer's, it is a what we call a U-shaped curve, that people who actually sleep 10 hours or more uh, have an increased risk for Alzheimer's. Mm. So uh, it's like so many things, there's a sweet spot. Right. Whether it's blood sugar, we don't want that to be too low. We want it low, yeah. but not too low. Uh, exercise, we can overdo exercise. You know, you can be at a stage where you are past your antioxidant ability uh, to protect your cells and your DNA and your mitochondria from the free radicals that are produced. So everything is about finding that, that sweet spot. And, you know, we know these days that forward-thinking healthcare providers have a, a pretty robust ability to give us feedback in terms of where we are, uh, whether it's glucose monitoring, where we are based upon our lifestyle choices, food, most importantly, uh, where we are in terms of damaging our, our uh, bodies by looking at DNA damage via a blood test called 8-OHDG, by looking at uh, uh, carbonyls that measure protein damage, by looking at lipid peroxides that measure damage from free radicals on our fat. We can have these tests done and tell us exactly what's going on. Do we have enough antioxidants on board? In other words, are we making good antioxidants uh, or are we doing too much? Uh, are, we, you know, are we just overtraining? And many of your viewers, I think, myself included, uh, have been guilty of that in the past. You know. Uh, yep. Uh, everybody wants to run a marathon or more, and you know, the training for that is not probably the best thing that we could be doing for ourselves. So it's, again, it's about finding the right balance. Yeah. The right, what is the sweet spot? Yeah, I certainly have been guilty of overtraining as well. So it's definitely an important thing to, to be considerate of. What are, the, what are the top nutrition strategies that you recommend? You, obviously, we've talked a lot about blood sugar stability. What are other things that, and really kind of focusing in around blood sugar, I'm sure, but what are, what are the nutrition principles that you would recommend for people to get started with? Oh, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. Um, I think as a general rule, number one would be two words eat less. Mm. We have a tendency uh, to yeah. eat too much food and we don't need it. Uh, and it's hard uh, to, to resist that temptation. Uh, 
my wife is a wonderful cook and it's very, very challenging. So, so what I do is I just don't eat during the day mm. and I, uh, you know, maybe in the afternoon I have uh, something very small and then I have dinner. Yeah. Um, so I think the notion of eating less is very important. I think we as Americans and by and large in Western cultures are eating too much protein uh, and too much uh, animal protein. Is it okay to eat animal protein? Of course, in my opinion, but not too much. I think we're overdoing it. The, you know, the danger of too much protein is that because of the, the higher levels of amino acids that will then be in your bloodstream, uh, particularly the branch chain amino acids, which are leucine, isoleucine, and valine, uh, we tend to stimulate uh, something called mTOR. And what mTOR is all about is really the balance between building up and breaking down. Now, there's value to each. It's sort of that, that, uh, uh, like Ecclesiastes, a time to build up, a time to break down. That was turned into a song by the <laughs> birds called Turn, Turn, Turn. Anyway, uh, I digress. But the point is... Um, you know, uh, bodybuilders want to build muscle, and to a, 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 a certain degree, we all need to be building up at times. It's good for us to maintain our muscle bulk and repair. Uh, but by and large, eating uh, too much protein tends to keep that switch on uh, when the other switch needs to be activated, the breaking down switch, uh, the what we call the autophagy switch, whereby we break down defective cells and we break down def defective organelles or particles within cells, uh, bacteria, misfolded proteins, things that have gotten into cells that need to be uh, gotten rid of. Uh, and we would then use those breakdown products to fuel uh, our other cells. That's an important process, autophagy, that's really very valuable in keeping our immune systems balanced, in helping us rid ourselves of senescent uh, cells that are defective in terms of their functionality and tend to augment uh, the production of inflammatory mediators. So we have to look at, you know, that's a bigger discussion, uh, but uh, how uh, we activate this mTOR pathway to um, make us keep growing things like muscles and possibly even cancer cells uh, that are activated, you know, thinking that it's time to grow. Uh, we stimulate uh, that growth through uh, increasing what is called IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1, also has a role to play in that determination as to whether it's time for building up or, or breaking down. The point I want to make is that breaking down our tissues is always a good thing, uh, that we cycle through that. And unfortunately, when we're constantly keeping the switch open towards building, uh, we don't have that opportunity to capitalize on autophagy. So we can uh, augment on autophagy by being careful about how much protein we consume, um, exercise, and even fasting from time to time, uh, which might take as long as two to three days to really get autophagy ramped up. We know that some people indicate that even um, intermittent fasting uh, or uh, time-restricted eating, if you will, might be worthwhile. A fasting-mimicking type diet promoted by Dr. Walter Longo may enhance autophagy. The data with respect to those uh, ideas in terms of enhancing autophagy is not overwhelming, or, or at least it isn't robust as yet. We don't really yet, in my opinion, have a great handle on what it takes to get autophagy ramped up. But yeah. suffice it to say, it needs to be ramped up. And it's very important that we don't constantly bombard our bodies with high levels of protein. So um, what you're hearing me say is uh, a plant-based diet is uh, a good thing to have on board all the time, or at least most of the time. I am not fully plant-based. Uh, I will have fish. Uh, I will have various uh, animal sources of protein, but not a lot uh, and not every day, that's for sure. Uh, I think a good, colorful, plant-based plate is really what you want to go for. And by all means, these ultra-processed foods, these simple carbs, uh, foods that have been sweetened, which represent more than 60% of the 2 million foods sold in our grocery stores, have to be called out and therefore avoided. You know, you think there's something 
harmless about ketchup or you know this sauce or that sauce, whatever it is, read labels and you'll see, you know, added sugar, not for me, not for you, not for anyone. We don't need sugar. Sugar tells the body that winter is coming and that we're going to be locked in a time of caloric scarcity. We better make body fat right away because who knows what the future holds. That's been a powerful survival mechanism, but we're not living in a time of caloric scarcity anymore. So now that mechanism is working against us. Yeah, for sure. And how about the impact of ketones? How do ketones impact the brain? And ketones are an energy source our body will create when we're fasting. It'll create it in the liver because we can't get fatty acids across the blood-brain barriers. So instead, our liver creates ketones, which are water-soluble molecules smaller than fatty acids that can cross the blood-brain barrier and fuel the brain. So we, we produce those naturally when we are in times of fasting. And then also we can keep our carbohydrate levels really low and uh, follow what we call a ketogenic diet, where we're actually able to create these ketones and use them. And what kind of impact do they have on the brain? I, I think it's been, uh, it, it's safe to say that ketones represent a super fuel for the brain. Yes, the brain <clears throat> depends on uh, glucose generally for its functionality. And even in the state of ketosis, there's still utilization of glucose that happens in the brain. It's not as if the brain fully keto adapts and that's what ends up powering the brain. But the utilization of ketones as a fuel for the brain is exceedingly efficient, uh, produces more ATP, produces less uh, free radical mediated damage than the utilization of glucose. But beyond that, I think uh, it's valuable to consider that ketones uh, represent more than just an efficiency uh, protocol in terms of fueling the brain. That uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate, for example, acts as a messenger molecule, mm. uh, actually uh, changes uh, gene expression, activates cellular uh, G-protein receptors, and has uh, important action in terms of, of gene expression. So uh, it's, it's telling our bodies that we are in a time of caloric scarcity, and it makes changes. We know that it enhances uh, the production of, of BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, that uh, helps the brain work even better, allows synaptogenesis to take place at a higher level. The synapses connecting one brain cell to another, fundamental for learning uh, things, and also even increases neurogenesis. And, and also, though it's not talked about, uh, um, protects brain cells uh, when the brain is traumatized outcome studies in trauma, brain trauma, in comparison to BDNF levels have demonstrated that those individuals, when they've gone into a hospital with brain trauma, who have higher BDNF levels, uh, actually have a better outcome. So we want to keep our BDNF levels elevated, and being in ketosis is certainly one way of making that happen. Uh, but you know, the truth of the matter is one of the most powerful things you could do to augment BDNF uh, in your brain right now is exercise. Hmm. Aerobic exercise has been demonstrated in studies dating back to 2012 to be really uh, a powerful upregulator of BDNF transcription and uh, has been demonstrated in a one-year study to actually, in comparison to age match controls who were uh, simply given a stretching program to engage, uh, compared to those individuals, those who engaged in aerobic exercise actually had a larger hippocampus as opposed to the decline in the size of the brain's memory center, if you will, in those who simply did stretching, and even memory function was improved in those doing uh, aerobics versus those who simply stretched. So um, the work was uh, done by a Dr. Erickson, uh, University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, and really very compelling to look side by side at those images, uh, voxometric images of the uh, you know, looking at the voxels, the three-dimensional size of the hippocampus, comparing exercise to stretching. Now, I'm not going to tell you that you shouldn't stretch. Yeah, right. You to get your heart rate up. Yeah, that's what you know. That's what the take-home message is. When you get your heart rate up, whether it's with high-interval uh, training, um, high-intensity interval training, or it's just hitting a target a heart rate, good for you based on your age and your fitness, uh, for a minimum of 20 minutes. I would say at least each day, uh, that's what triggers a gene expression change. Think of it. 
you are changing the expression of your DNA, your life code. It's in your hands. We, you know, we used to think it was locked in the glass case. No, it's not. So that idea is exceedingly empowering that we can augment within our bodies the level of BDNF, grow new brain cells at a higher rate, increase synaptogenesis, uh, and protect our neurons against damage uh, should we experience some sort of event, whether it's an exogenous a traumatic event or even endogenous event like a stroke, for example. So, um, you know, this, this does get back to, to our basics of nutrition. You know, Gary Taubes has said that ketosis is, was probably the normal state of affairs for our ancestors, that they probably spent most of their time in ketosis, you know, as opposed to all the rest of us who may not be in ketosis all the time, but do our best to get there, uh, you know, as frequently as we possibly can. Not that it's easy and not that it's for everybody and not that uh, it is, you know, something that you're going to be able to do all the time. But I will say that um, even from an interventional perspective now, we are seeing robust data that shows what ketosis does in the brain in terms of uh, uh, free radical production, in terms of inflammation production, in terms of what I've mentioned to you a moment ago. Uh, Dr. Matthew Phillips has recently published a paper, uh, he's in Australia, uh, on the role of ketosis in the actual treatment of Parkinson's disease. So uh, showing that those individuals who were put on a ketogenic diet uh, in multiple uh, measurements, parameters that are typically used, uh, in, in Parkinson's disease rating scale, that they improved uh, in comparison to those who ate their typical diet. So we know that, you know, metabolically, uh, even as it relates to Parkinson's, one study out of England uh, looked at several million individuals. I think uh, total, the control was 6 million people and the um, Parkinson's group uh, was uh, about 2 million people. And what they found was that there was, uh, no, it was a group with diabetes, right? Those with diabetes in comparison to the, um, uh, the controls had a 3.81 fold increased risk of developing Parkinson's if they were type two diabetic, especially the highest number were in the younger patients. Mm. So what we're getting at here is that what an incredible role metabolism of the brain over which we have control is playing in terms of our susceptibility to neurodegenerative conditions that we so fear, like Alzheimer's and like Parkinson's. The empowering part of our discussion is that these metabolic parameters are to a significant degree under our control based upon our lifestyle choices that relate to exercise, the quality and quantity of our sleep experience, and certainly our food choices as well. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know that this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast is sponsored by our friends at Paleo Valley. They make the most powerful, pure vitamin C supplement you can get. Because unlike most vitamin C supplements containing synthetic ingredients that are created in the lab, Paleo Valley Essential C Complex is made from three of the most potent whole food sources of vitamin C on the planet. Nothing weird, just food. Check them out at paleovalley.com and use the coupon code JOCKERS, J-O-C-K-E-R-S, to get 15% off today. And really the nutrition principles that you recommended where like what you're doing, eating once or twice a day, um, just doing that alone, along with prioritizing sleep and getting regular exercise is going to have a dramatic effect on your blood sugar, your insulin, and start to boost ketones. You need some sort of fuel source, your brain does, uh, outside of just glucose when blood sugar starts to drop. And if you're not eating as frequently, you know, in our society, most people are eating five, six times a day. If we're not doing that, we're naturally going to boost some ketones and get that effect. And then, you know, another easy thing people can do is add some MCT oil to their meals, right? I mean, there was a study where that's all they did at a nursing home and they saw positive changes in a subjective scoring of people's uh, memory, right? And so, um, so there's even a simple thing like that. 
Yeah, and, and you know the idea of of raising ketones has been, uh, gosh, that's been looked at for you know a couple uh, of decades. Uh, there was even a proprietary medical food that was mm. created, uh, and uh, many two decades ago, and was marketed. It had some some success because it raised ketones, and and as you say, that you know offered up some some yeah. improvement, but. You know, I think that the, the the whole notion of living your life as you want to, and then hoping that when something happens, you become diabetic, you develop cancer, you get coronary artery disease, and you or Alzheimer's, that there's going to be a magic pill for you, yeah. doesn't exist. It doesn't work that way. We have no treatment, no treatment right. whatsoever from a pharmaceutical perspective for Alzheimer's disease, none whatsoever. Uh, the, the biggest class of drugs that are actually prescribed for Alzheimer's uh, are called the cholinesterase inhibitors, like donepezil. Um, there was a, an interesting study that appeared in the Journal of the American Medical Association written by an author by the name of uh, Richard Kennedy. And it was a meta-analysis of the 10 previous studies of this cholinesterase inhibitor type drug that sells to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars a year in our country. And he found, interestingly, published in JAMA online, that not only did this drug, Donepezil, not slow the rate of cognitive decline, it actually was associated with worsening cognitive decline mm -hmm. in comparison to people who were not taking the Alzheimer's drug, making them decline cognitively more quickly. Published in the Journal of the American Medical Association online. It's on my website. Uh, so um, that's reality, and yet that drug is still prescribed to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Wow, yeah. So really lifestyle change is the key. Now I got two more questions for you. One is, what are your top five supplements for brain health? The first, number one supplement for brain health is one that's called exercise. I'm <laughs> taking liberties. Vitamin E, yeah. I would put it, uh, vitamin, yeah. Vitamin X we'll or exorcismab, if you want to yeah. use a, a monoclonal antibody. Uh, but as it relates to uh, vitamins and supplements, you know, I, I would say to some degree, it really depends upon the individual. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not trying to dodge your question, but allow me, if you will. Um, for example, when you are, are evaluating doing a workup of a patient for brain health, one of the things we like to look at would be homocysteine. So mm. a person has a very highly elevated homocysteine, we're gonna wanna target that with B vitamins. If they have genetic uh, studies that show that they have uh, some uh, MTHFR polymorphisms, or they have a predisposition for having problems with, they, uh, with what they do with B vitamins, then you would wanna have a different kind of B vitamin called methylated B vitamin. So for that person, uh, I think the B vitamins are going to play a really important role. What, what would be the ideal homocysteine level? With stroke risk and Alzheimer's risk. So that needs to be brought under control. Where Similar, would you like to see the homocysteine? Uh, eight or lower. Okay. Yep. Uh, similarly, uh, I would think it would be good pr prior to initiating a supplement regimen that we know people's vitamin D levels. D mm -hmm. is yeah. so critical for immunity, inflammation, and brain health across the board, whether it's Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, MS, uh, autism, we see uh, very striking correlations of risk for those issues with lower levels of vitamin D. And in fact, you know, in America, um, our vitamin D levels by and large are really not where they need to be. You know, less than 20 is uh, something that we see quite regularly. So target zone, again, might depend on what that individual's genome looks like, what is the status of their vitamin D receptor genes. But I would say targeting somewhere around 60 would be reasonable. Mm -hmm. Certainly these days, uh, having uh, adequate amounts of vitamin D makes a heck of a lot of sense as it relates to our immune function vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, so I would put vitamin D really way up on the list and next would certainly, and, and probably of equal standing, would be DHA. It's uh, a polyunsaturated fatty acid and omega-3, DHA, docosahexaenoic acid, is about as close to being a brain tonic as uh, you could look for. Um, 
wonderful correlative studies going back at least a quarter century by Martha Claire Morris with respect to DHA blood levels and dementia risk. Uh, interventional trials now are, are proving how important DHA is. I mentioned earlier that DHA, or maybe I didn't, uh, augments uh, BDNF production. Uh, it is, uh, you know, highly represented in the brain and specifically in the cell membrane. Uh, so we need DHA. We don't make DHA to any significant degree from precursors. So we would call it therefore essential, at least I'll call it an essential fatty acid, an EFA, and can be obtained from um, fish, uh, marine forms, uh, uh, like marine algae, for example, and therefore that would be a vegetarian source uh, for those who want to maintain being vegetarian. So I put um, B vitamins, vitamin D, DHA as really uh, critical. Now, if I have two more slots to fill, I would probably say that a good prebiotic fiber supplement would be on the list. Uh, this is the type of fiber like from acacia tree or baobab tree that nurtures our gut bacteria. We um, know that uh, gut bacteria are playing a really important role in overall health, certainly metabolic health, certainly, and brain health as well. So everything we can do to nurture our gut bacteria, I think, uh, should be considered. So let's add prebiotic fiber uh, to, the to the list. Uh, beyond that, you know, uh, in, the, in position five, it, there's, it's a tie. I think we'll give the um, we'll give the uh, tie to uh, har hard to say. Gosh, because um, there's so many new things uh, that we want to think about. Like, what are your thoughts on magnesium for the? Brain? I was just going to say magnesium uh, specifically uh, for brain health, threonate. Yeah. But magnesium's in in my box. I will tell you, uh, one of my top supplements is magnesium. Um, there are many forms out there, and you know the truth is you just want to do what it takes to raise your intracellular magnesium level. Um, I think uh, there is merit to um, resveratrol, mm -hmm. to uh, NAD precursors, whether it's nicotinamide riboside or nicotinamide mononucleotide. Uh, I uh, do my very best to augment within my body something called sulforaphane. There mm -hmm. are supplements out there that are kind of precursors to sulforaphane. Uh, it's easier for me to take a supplement, but we do eat a lot of broccoli sprouts as yeah. well. That's really very important. It's kind of another discussion that we'll have at another time as we talk yeah. about the what's called the NRF2 pathway. But I think uh, we've mentioned quite a bit lipoic acid, coenzyme yeah. Q10, uh, things that people can be considering. But, you know, I would say that guidance from a trained individual in terms of what would be the personalized medicine approach for somebody in terms of what they would need uh, based upon their lab work and family history, et cetera, would be probably a, a better recommendation. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Now, what are the, let's say the top five foods you think about when it comes to overall brain health that you're consuming on a regular basis? I'd say fish uh, is on the list, kale uh, for me, um, broccoli, um, olive oil. broccoli sprouts too, so we'll throw we'll sprouts that. And broccoli, <laughs> uh, broccoli sprouts. Uh, I don't know if you're going to consider that a supplement or a food. We'll, we'll include that with the broccoli. <laughs> okay. Uh, olive oil. Yeah. Um, and for me, uh, I'm going to reach here. Oh, jicama would be really a, a brain food because of its prebiotic fiber. And I love onions. There you go. I'm with you there. I love onions as well. So this has been a great interview. We've gone through so much. I really appreciate your time, Dr. Perlmutter. Guys, definitely check out his books, Grain Brain, Brain Maker, and also his newest book, Brainwash. And uh, Dr. Perlmutter, thanks so much. And also check out his site, drperlmutter.com. Any last words, inspiration for our audience here? I think that it's important to value the notion of connection. And that is connection at mm. multiple levels. It is uh, the connection that we have to our DNA and the control that we have over our DNA that can pave the way for health and longevity. The connection that we have to the trillions of organisms that live within our gut that play a huge role in determining our health and longevity. The connection that we have to the parts of the brain that allow us to be compassionate and empathy to the prefrontal cortex and distancing ourselves away from 
other parts of the brain that are more impulsive. And certainly the connection that we have not only to our planet, which is exceedingly valuable that we remain connected and understand our connection to the planet, but certainly the connection that we have to each and every other being on this planet. We live in a time where there is some messaging that would indicate we need to distance ourselves from mm -hmm. people. And while that has merit, it doesn't mean that we remain isolated from other people. There are ways to remain connected to people like you and I are being connected yeah. right now uh, and that are exceedingly important for us and exceedingly valuable for us in terms of lowering our cortisol, lowering our stress level, lowering inflammation. Uh, and it's exceedingly valuable then to consider the various interpretations of what connection is all about. Great message and very timely with everything that's going on in our world. So thank you so much for your time once again. And guys, we'll see you on a future interview. Everybody be blessed. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.